Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, it's, uh, it's really good to be with you. I felt compelled to say this in the nine, and I, I want to say it again, not because I have time. I actually have more words to say this morning than I have minutes to say them in, but... Um, the Bible tells us to give honor where honors due, and I love being with this congregation. If this is your church, if you're a member here, I, I, I may have met you, may not, but like I, I've, I've been here enough to know the spirit of you guys, and you guys are an amazing group of people. You're humble. You love God's word. You pursue God's presence. You're faithful. You're friendly. You're fun. Like For me to watch the hugs and to hear the laughter in this place is a profound blessing to me. And that's, that's God's work among you, but that's you responding to the grace of God. And I just wanted to honor you for that and say thanks for, uh, thanks for being who you are and uh, thanks for letting me benefit from the presence and the work of God among you. And if you're not a member of this church, if you're new here or visiting here like me, um, this is an amazing group of people to walk with. Not a perfect group of people, by any stretch of the imagination, and not a safe group of people. Um, I don't mean that they're rowdy or raucous. I mean the God they've devoted their lives to follow is not safe, and to walk with sinful people isn't safe. Actually, to live in the world isn't safe, but I don't think God created us to be safe. God created us to be conformed into the image of Jesus and to receive all the blessings of the kingdom of God. And I, I know one thing for sure, you can find that and rock with these people. Um, so even if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you want to know what it looks like to follow him, hang out with these people. Walk with these people. And uh, e- even where they fail you and hurt you, they will repent and point you to Jesus even there. It's, it's amazing to be with you guys. So I, I don't say that to flatter you or anything else. I say that to say God is at work among you, and I see it. And it, it's, um, it's humbling to be in your presence. So like, you should, you, should, uh, you should honor God in your own heart for that. Now I'm going to pray and uh, ask God to meet with us or continue to meet with us as he already has. Father, I'm grateful for your word. And I just ask now that you would open your word to us and open us to your word. Spirit of the living God, would you awaken faith in all of us, to hear, to see, 
to respond in faith? Like we, we talked about the way in which you've been hospitable to us and we actually did something to practice a response to that. We turned and greeted others in your name. God, I ask now that as you have been hospitable to us, as we have been hospitable to one another, that you would make our hearts hospitable and receptive to your word. And God, I always feel um, frail and fragile and powerless and small and incapable of speaking your truth. I think that's a good thing because I'm asking you to be all the things that I'm not for all of us. And especially this morning, God, with so much in this passage, I'm asking you to instruct us and encourage us and save us and sanctify us. I realize that to talk about judgment for many is um, something that makes them want to run away, or something that brings up memories from a kind of church they vowed they'd never come back into. But we talk about the final judgment today, acknowledging, God, that you sent your son into our world to receive judgment in our place. You're not just a God who's waving an angry stick in the world. You're a God who longs for us to be whole and longs for holiness and righteousness to prevail. So would you do that in us this morning? It's a miracle I'm asking for. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I have been thinking a lot about irony during this season of Advent. I try, I try to find unique focuses in the season of Advent, lest I just get caught up in all the stuff I want to buy for others or humbly admitting like all the stuff I want to buy for myself. And I try to think about what God was actually doing and what God thought up and what God was intending in sending his son into our world. And this year I've spent time meditating on the irony of Advent. Advent is ironic. And what I mean is this. I don't mean there's a hipster vibe about Advent. I mean that Advent is unexpected. Or more clearly, Advent is an unexpected way in which God meets expected desires in us, right? Well, what we celebrate in this season is God has broken into our world. God has come to us, but he's done it in a way we didn't ever imagine. In fact, he's done it in a way that's so unexpected that many of us struggle to stomach it. We, we think about the needs in the world, the brokenness in the world, the injustice in the world, the longing in the world, and what we think we need is an impressive leader. We, we think we need a political pathfinder. We think we need a more benevolent billionaire or some kind of tech innovator. And into this world of expectation and this world of longing... God sends a child born in a peasant context in Palestine. No special pedigree, no impressive parents. Ironic. Think about the irony that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to face about her child. I mean, if you look at Luke chapter 1, she had to acknowledge the irony that he was her child from the beginning. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary. You can look at this, in fact, in Luke chapter 1, or if you want to mark it later and look at it yourselves later, you can do that. But in Luke chapter 1, in verse 26 and following, the angel Gabriel was dispatched from the presence of God to this nowhere place, to this nowhere woman, to announce that this everywhere God was manifesting his presence to his people through her. The irony there for her is like, she can do math. She understands biology. I, I can't be with child. It's impossible. 
It's not just an unexpected solution to expected desires. It's an impossible one. And then you have this humble woman who hears this impossible statement and says, let it be to me as you've spoken. It's an ironic response. And then when the child is born, turn a page over in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. This, this, I don't know how many times I've read this and it does not stop flooring me. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is taken to the temple and we meet an ironic set of characters, Simeon and Anna. We see in verse 25 of Luke chapter 2, when Simeon meets Jesus, the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him that he wouldn't see death until he saw the Messiah. Now, whether he was expecting a king, someone riding a white horse, wearing a sword or whatever, what happens is Simeon sees this child and God says to him, that's the one. That's what you've been waiting your whole life for. And Simeon takes this child from his mother's arms and he says something that's ironic to the mom. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never had perplexing statements made to me about my children. I've had uh, encouraging statements made to me about my children. I've had horrifying statements made to me about my children. Hey, your son hit a girl. And he responds, what's okay, dad? She goes to our church. (laughs) Horrifying. (laughs) But, But I've never had a statement made to me about my kids that was confounding to me, perplexing to me. And Simeon says to the mother of Jesus, look in verse 34 of Luke chapter 2. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Not a common thing you say to a mom or her baby. Because what he's saying is, This child is appointed to bring judgment. That's what he says to the mom. That's an ironic thing that a mom has to deal with. And in fact, it's what I want us to deal with this morning is the irony of God's advent and judgment. Why are we talking about judgment in the advent? It's because this child whose coming we celebrate came to judge. No no idea how that strikes you. Some of you might be overly zealous and fancy yourself overly righteous and you lean in, you're like, man, boy, howdy, the bad people are finally going to get their due. And others of you lean back and think, I don't know what to do with that. But we've got to understand, friends, that the line between good and evil in human history doesn't run between us and them. The line between good and evil runs right down the center of all of us. So when we talk about judgment, it has some kind of implication for me and for you. But to talk about judgment in Advent, though it might seem ironic or odd to many of you, talking about judgment has been the center of preaching the gospel since the gospel was first ever preached. In fact, the gospel of Jesus is the announcement that God has provided a way for you to escape his wrath that you rightly deserve. Listen to what one scholar says about judgment in the proclamation of the gospel and throughout the history of the scriptures. This is N.T. Wright talking. He says, throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. If 
God is going to set things to rights. If there will ever be an answer when we shake our fists in the air and say, is no one going to do anything about this? If God can and will do something about it, he must bring judgment to the world. And this child that we celebrate at Christmas was born to bring judgment. And here's the fact of the matter. We need judgment. We we need for what's wrong to be made right. We need for what's broken to be mended. We need for what's sick to be healed. But our problem goes deeper than that because it's not just that we need God to put back together the stuff that we've wrecked. We need God to deal with the fact that we actually want to wreck things in the world. You see, the problem in the world isn't just brokenness. The problem in the world is wickedness. The problem in the world is sin. The problem in the world is rebellion against God. And we long for judgment. Even those of you in this room that aren't followers of Jesus, you long for righteousness. Even if it's not according to God's standards, if it's just according to your own, you long for righteousness. And the day of the Lord that we heard mentioned in our passage this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day of the Lord is God's answer for what's wrong with the world. And though we may not want God to be the judge of what's wrong with the world, or we might not want God to judge the world according to the standards set out in the Bible, the thing we most deeply long for, God offers us in himself. We long for a judge. We long for decisive judgment. And in the person of Jesus, that's what God is doing in the world. So what I want us to do with the time we have left with us this morning is I just want us to talk about two things from this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. I want us to talk about the day of the Lord, which Paul mentions in verse 2. And then I want to talk about how we should live in light of the day of the Lord. So if you're a note taker, I hope I don't offend you. I don't have three points and I certainly don't have a poem. I have two points. I want us to talk together about what God's word says about the day of the Lord. And then I want us to talk together about how we live as a family, how we live as a family in light of the coming day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord. Why is Paul talking about this in the first place? Maybe you ask yourself. When, when we get to chapter five of First Thessalonians, you guys have come in at the end of the movie. And maybe you're saying to yourself, why is Paul talking about the day of the Lord anyway? And the answer is the Thessalonians were obsessed with it. The Thessalonians were obsessed with judgment and longing for the day of the Lord. If we understand the context of what they were dealing with, they were probably longing for judgment and the day of the Lord because all the suffering they had experienced in Jesus' name, which Paul has addressed with them already. But the Thessalonians are obsessed with the day of the Lord. And in the previous section in chapter 4, Paul has dealt with what happens to people that have already died and how they will experience the day of the Lord. There were Thessalonian Christians that were worried that their family members or friends or people in their community group that had died weren't going to receive the vindication of God. So how are the dead participate in the day of the Lord? We see, and then we see in chapter 5, they are obsessed with when it was going to take place. When is the day of the Lord coming? When will God come to fully and finally make things right? And so obsessed with knowing when the time was of the coming of the day of the Lord, we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that these people were willing to embrace wrong theories about the day of the Lord just to have some kind of answer for when it comes. So what Paul wants to do for them is address their concerns, address their fears, address their compulsions, and talk to them about the coming day of the Lord. That's the context. So let's pick up with how Paul answers their question in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, Paul says, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Stop. These people are obsessed with the day of the Lord. These people are trying to figure out when the day of the Lord will come. These people want to understand what the implications of the day of the Lord are for their lives. And do you hear Paul's answer to them? He gives them two of them. He says, now concerning the day of the Lord, verse 1, you don't need to have anything written to you about it. Verse 2, concerning the day of the Lord, you yourselves are fully aware of everything you need to know about it. Now, this made me chuckle this week as I prayed for you and prepared to preach this message to you. You know why? I don't know what you know about the day of the Lord. I don't know what you're aware of about the day of the Lord. I love your pastors. Love them very much. Love that Frontline Church is committed unapologetically, unwaveringly to the word of God and to preaching the word of God. It's one of the reasons why I moved my family here. I know that your pastors are committed to faithfully preaching God's word to you. And I love your pastors, incidentally. But can I say confidently that they've taught you everything you need to know about the day of the Lord? No. No shade. I mean, Andrew, have you taught them everything that you need to taught them about the day of the Lord? Are the members of Frontline South fully aware of the day of the Lord? We need help. I need help, too. I said to Andrew this morning, I was like, I hope I don't offend you because like, I don't think you've adequately equipped your people to confront the day of the Lord. And he's like, no, you go to any funeral and just listen to people talk. We have no idea what's coming with the day of the Lord. So what I want us to do is I just want us to walk through briefly, biblically, the Old Testament background for the day of the Lord, how Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke of when they spoke of the coming day of the Lord, and then just what the Bible tells us about final judgment. I want, I want to give you sufficient knowledge so that we could walk out of here today and say, hey, concerning the day of the Lord, do we know comprehensively? No, but we, we know enough. We know enough to live in light of it. We know enough to be free from anxiety concerning it. We know enough to walk confidently in the promises of God. So where did this language come from in the first place? The, the language of the day of the Lord was used by Old Testament prophets as early as the 8th century BC, I think maybe the first place we see this is in Amos's writing. And the day of the Lord was used to describe this coming full and final and complete and cataclysmic day of judgment. In fact, the prophets talk about this coming day of the Lord with language that has the sky falling to the ground and the earth being burned up. And this kind of cosmic, chaotic language is not necessarily what's going to happen on the terrain, but a way of describing the comprehensive way in which God is going to pour out his wrath on the sins of humanity. And it really is about the wrath of a holy God towards sin. In fact, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 2, the day of the Lord is called the day of the Lord's anger. And in Joel chapter 3, and again in Malachi chapter 4, this term refers unwaveringly to the climactic final judgment of God. The day of the Lord was the day that everyone was longing for. Like if you've been in that moment where you have been uniquely confronted with the brokenness of the world and you're like, man, when, is, when are these people going to have to give an answer for this? When is this sickness going to be eradicated? When are all the things that have been vandalized in this world going to be made right again? There was a scholar years ago that defined sin as the vandalism of shalom, the vandalism of full flourishing as God had intended it to be. And as the prophets looked around at all of creation vandalized and all of God's purposes vandalized and cried out, how long, O Lord, the answer that God gave them is there is one coming who will make everything right. His measuring stick is perfectly straight. His anger is perfectly justified. He is perfectly holy. He will judge the earth with with perfection. 
And the one that the Old Testament prophets pointed to is Jesus himself. When we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, and we start to wonder, who is the one that's able to do this? When the New Testament opens, the answer is resounding. He's the one. Jesus is the one. This odd child born to an odd family with an odd backstory in the middle of nowhere, that is the one that will usher in the day of the Lord. And we see this testified in the Gospels. John chapter 5, verse 27 says that he has the authority to execute judgment and that it was given to him by God himself. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, when we see preaching happening about Jesus, it's declared about him, right? That he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is God himself come into our world to bring about the final judgment and glorious kingdom of the Most High God. That's why he came. It's why when we talk about his birth in Advent, to fail to talk about his desire and zeal for judgment seems odd. You're like, well, it seems odd to talk about judgment during Advent. I would contend to you it seems odd not to. But here's why Jesus was such a mystery to those he came to. All the people of Israel were expecting God's deliverer, to bring about the day of the Lord in this mighty political fashion. He was supposed to be a military warrior, maybe soon to be crowned king. He was supposed to accomplish all the purposes of God with one swoop of the sword. And the thing that so messed with people's minds about Jesus is he came in and inaugurated the kingdom of God, but didn't consummate it. He came and announced the judgment of God, but didn't fully wield it upon humanity because he had a deeper purpose. You see, he came once to announce the judgment of God and to offer himself as a blood sacrifice for all who would look to him to be delivered from the judgment of God. He did come in his first advent bringing the judgment of God. It's just such an ironic way because he received it in himself for all that would look to him as their savior. Jesus came as a savior to deliver us from the judgment he came to proclaim. And what his word tells us is he will come back again to finish what's been started, to silence every taunt, to... um, to justify every wrong, to heal all the diseases in the world, to combat the enemies of sin, Satan, and death, and to stand with no debate about it as the king of the world. As I prayed for you guys this week, it struck me that the first advent of Jesus can be ignored. The second one will not be. The first advent of Jesus can be sentimentalized. The second one will not be. The first advent of Jesus can be mocked. At the second advent, the scriptures tell us every knee will bow. Even the ones who pierced him will declare he's the king of the universe. At the second coming, when he fully and finally accomplishes the day of the Lord, all humanity will stand before the great throne of God's judgment. Let's just talk about judgment in that moment. Romans 14, 1 to 12 is a place I go regularly for comfort. And you're like, what a weird person that goes to a judgment passage for comfort. But in this passage, Paul says, everyone's going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And he says, you're not going to stand before me, and I'm not going to stand before you. As much as we try to be God and judge in one another's life, there is one judge. And on the day of the Lord, we will all line up and stand before him, no one else. At the great day of the Lord, all humanity will stand before the judgment seat. Those who are living and those who have died previously. Those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. All humanity 
will stand before the judgment seat of God. And in fact, Jude 6 and 2 Peter chapter 2 tell us that it's not only humans that will be judged, angels will be judged also. Those angels that have rebelled against God and his glorious kingdom will be consigned forever into an eternal lake of fire, and the holy angels will be commended and honored for their service unto the Lord. And this is really critical for us to hold as we think about the judgment throne of God and the day of the Lord. Jesus presiding as judge will be fair in his judgment. On the day of the Lord, Jesus presiding as judge will be fair in his judgment. I say that because even the greatest human courts we're submitted to now get it wrong. Trials get overturned rightly and wrongly on appeal. And on the day of the Lord, there will be no um, misperceptions from the judge, the one who is holy and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving will judge justly and fairly. The God of the universe will judge rightly. Those who have not looked to Jesus for their salvation, Romans 2.8, there will be wrath and fury for you forever. And this isn't about some kind of Halloween haunted hell house to try to scare that out of you. This is just the declaration of the God who is holy, who will make everything right, will justifiably and rightly punish those who have rebelled against him. And those whose rebellion has been covered by his grace, the judgment seat for you will not be about fear. It'll be about reward for you. Because check this out, everyone who looks to Jesus to deliver them from the wrath they rightly deserve for their sin, everyone who looks to Jesus to deliver you from the wrath you rightly deserve from your sin, even if you do that this afternoon upon leaving here, the day of the Lord has nothing to do with judgment for you because you received all of that when Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. Everyone who looks to Jesus, the judgment has already been poured out on Jesus for you. All of it. All of it. Which means you don't need to try to pour any more on yourself today. All God's judgment, all God's wrath for you was poured out on Jesus. That's why he's good news. He took what you deserved and gave you what he alone deserves, which is right standing in the kingdom of God. If you are in Jesus, all God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus for you. And Romans 8 is true now and forever that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now This afternoon, tomorrow, forever, and on the day of the Lord, there is no judgment for you. Oh God, would you help us learn that so we would stop walking in it now? Oh man, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no judgment for you now and forever. It was all poured out on Jesus. Worship him. Worship him. Worship him. Run to him when you're afraid. Run to him when you sin against him because in his presence you find healing. The judgment was taken care of 2,000 years ago. But the scriptures make clear on the day of the Lord we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ but it won't be about wrath and condemnation. That's been dealt with. This will be about rewards forever for the ways in which we've walked in faithful response to Jesus. Now, the crazy thing is all of our faithfulness on this earth is empowered by the indwelling spirit of God. So when we're given the rewards for our faithfulness to him, what will we do but give them back to him? And it's not going to be church. Like on the judgment day, I'm looking to the left and going, how's Andrew Burkhart get all that? And I just got this. Why is Will, I know Will Gaines. Why does Will Gaines have all those rewards? It's not going to be like that. Because on the day of the Lord, on judgment day, we will be in awe of him. 
And however it works, man, I don't understand it. Don't have the brain processing power to figure it out. But whatever rewards I'm given, even though they be exponentially smaller than Andrew Burkhart's, the scriptures tell me my joy in that moment will be complete. Forever, 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 free from sin, free from sickness, free from death, free from rebellion. And Jesus repeatedly tells us, nobody knows when that time is coming. Nobody knows when that time's coming. Nobody knows when that time's coming. Now, why we have seen traditions in the church and people in the history of the church so obsessed with figuring out the day of Jesus' coming and so convinced that in defiance of his word they can figure out when he's coming is lost on me. But, but you've seen traditions of people. Maybe some of you have come from them. Maybe some of you walk in them now. If you walk with them now, no shade from me to you. I just want to free you this morning. Because there's lots of energy that's been expended in past years of the church of like, well, if I study the news carefully enough, and if I have this kind of apocalyptic decoder ring, I can discover exactly when Jesus is going to return. And I, I, candidly, I think that's a desire to be faithful to Scripture. The Bible tells me to be ready. I want to be ready. i got to pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East. But, but guess what? The Bible says you don't need a calendar and you don't need a decoder ring. You know what you need to prepare for the day of the Lord? The Lord himself. That's all you need. All you need is the Lord himself. You do not need deep apocalyptic knowledge of what's happening with Putin. And look to Jesus now. That's how you get ready for the day of the Lord. That, and that is what's coming And brothers and sisters in this room that have not looked to Jesus to take from you the wrath that you know, if you're honest, that you deserve. You can look to him today to do that. And this isn't about proving your worthiness. This isn't about going home and throwing away your drugs. This isn't about clearing porn off your hard drive. This is about saying, oh, I realize that the only thing I bring to the equation with the God of the universe is my need for him. And he brings everything else. And I will run to him. I will look to him to be my rock and my refuge and my ever-present help in trouble and my cleft and my hiding place and my deliverance and my salvation and my healing and my light and my joy forever. You can have that now, right now. You can have it right now. That, that is what's coming for the day of the Lord. The question now is, how do we prepare for it? What does Paul say we do in order to live in light of the day of the Lord? Because I don't know if you picked this up. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 is really just about the reality of the day of the Lord and then how we live in light of the reality of the day of the Lord. Because what Paul is parsing out is how people are disposed toward it. You're either in darkness or you're in light. You're either a child of the king or you're an enemy of the king. You're either saying, hey, there's no problem. There's peace and prosperity. What's everybody messed up about? Or you understand that real judgment is coming with a real holy God who will fully and completely solve all that's broken in the earth. There's, there's only two ways to live. And some of you are like, I'm not really into binary people. I want there to be gray. I mean, there's gray in so many places in the universe, and we can walk in that gray and figure out that gray. When it comes to the day of the Lord, brothers and sisters, there is only black and there is only white. There is only children of light and there's only children of darkness. It is the only way. And Paul says, the way you live in light of the day of the Lord is quite simple. Look at verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us be sober. He says, how do you live in light of the coming day of the Lord, is you do what people do in the daytime. So you're you're a child of the day. And and what people do at night is they sleep and they get drunk. Paul says, that's not who we are. If you're in Jesus, that's not who you are. You shouldn't be sleeping and you shouldn't be getting drunk. You should be awake and you should be sober. You don't belong to the night. It's funny, Paul wrote this, obviously, before the 
advent of streetlights. We, we send our kids outside to play in the night, right? We don't, we don't think about the night, but in the ancient world, the night was the center of everything dark and evil. We get babysitters and go out for the night. In, in the ancient world, you blockaded your door from the night. You didn't go out into the night. You, you, you avoided the wickedness and darkness and evil in the night. And Paul says, what people do in the night, he's speaking proverbially and actually, he said, they sleep and they get drunk. Don't do that. Be awake, Paul says. And what he means is not that we should take caffeine pills and commit the rest of our lives into insomnia um, or, you know, or some kind of frenzied haze. He's talking about an attentiveness, a zeal that's leaned forward and focused on the coming reality. Hey, by the way, it's why I love what we do traditionally in America with Christmas presents. Make whatever rant you want to make about consumers and blah, 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 blah. I like the fact that my kids see gifts under the tree and start to orient their lives around the day in which they're opened. There's, a, there's an energy in the collie home that's moving towards that day. In fact, we just had a, a collie recently that had a birthday, and this collie says, I, I couldn't sleep. All I could think about was my birthday. I've been up since 4 a.m. Paul's saying, let that energy drive the way in which you lean into the day of the Lord. Be expectant. Be zealous. Be bending your life, your activities around the coming of that day. And I just want to give you guys either the permission if you need it or the language if you lack it to start encouraging one another with the language of wakefulness and sleep. Say, hey, are you awake? Are you awake? I I hear the way that you talk about your time in the television or the way you're spending your money or what you're orienting your weekends for. Are you awake, friend? Are you asleep? God tells us to live in light of the day of the Lord, to be awake. And it doesn't have to be a way you rub people's face in something. It could be a loving way you say, hey, wake up. You can say that to me. Hey, Collie, are you awake? I listen to the way you talk about your life. I listen to the way you talk about your kids. I listen to the way you talk about your desires. I listen to the way you talk about how you spend your money. Are you awake, man, or are you asleep? There's a day coming, and it is a real day. It will be the most real day any of us have ever experienced. And it will be the day that lasts for hundreds of billions of years into eternity. It's the most real day there is. Are you living for that day or are you asleep? That, that, that is how you live in light of the day of the Lord. You're awake and you're sober. And he's not just talking about ignoring alcohol or abstaining from overuse of alcohol. He's talking about not giving in to anything that would blunt your senses or intoxicate your awareness to distract you from the day. I have a really good friend who was successful in ministry and well-known in various circles that unbeknownst to all of us had lived quite a long time in his life as a highly functioning alcoholic. And through, through a series of friends and other issues, God brought immense conviction in his life, and he gave up drinking cold turkey, and he got sober. He wrote a book about it. And his book got a lot of notice and a lot of praise. And people started saying, hey, will you come to my church and will you speak about getting sober? And will you come to this men's event and will you speak about getting sober? And will you come on my podcast and talk about your book and talk about getting sober? And I said to him one time, hey, what's that like for you? And he said, I'm getting all this attention for being sober, Kevin, and I haven't been sober a day in my life. I looked at him with shock and he said, oh, I'm not drinking anymore. I've given up alcohol. But I just traded intoxication with booze for intoxication with success, intoxication with social media, intoxication with now the stuff I can buy. He said, man, I want to be sober, not so I can stand on stages and talk about it, but so I can orient the entirety of my life for the day. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, are you orienting everything about you in preparation for that day? what you think, 
what you eat, how you sleep, how we exercise, how we spend or don't spend our money, what we view, how we live, Paul says, should be characterized with a kind of zeal that's leaned in and that says to anything that could distract us, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, I'm, I'm here. You, you ever try to talk to somebody that's watching football over your shoulder on TV? It's like that, but on a cosmic scale. It's, like, it's what Paul's saying to do. Lean in to that. But he doesn't just say, be awake and be sober. Look at verse 11. This is another irony for me. He says, therefore, in light of this teaching on judgment day, in light of this teaching on the day of the Lord, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. How do you live in light of judgment? How do you live in light of the day of the Lord? Paul says you encourage one another based on it. You encourage one another based on it. How many of you are struggling with self-condemnation? There are encouraging words to be offered to you based on God's promise to judge the living and the dead. How many of you struggle with self-righteousness? There are encouraging words to be spoken to you based on God's promises for what he will do to judge the living and the dead. Think about immediate, proximate issues in your life. Think about relational brokenness. Think about situations with friends or former friends or relatives that you cannot explain and don't know if they'll ever be put back together. It's into that place the Apostle Paul says, look at the day of the Lord and encourage one another. And by the way, it's not just encouraging them the way they're going to get theirs. No, hey, you deserve the wrath of God. And God has made a way for you not to come up under it. In fact, that's what he says in verses 9 and 10. I wish I could preach an entire sermon on verses 9 and 10, but I'm just going to land the plane here. He says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The way you encourage one another with the coming judgment of the Lord is you point to Jesus who took the wrath that we deserved. And you can say, hey, think about all that your sin deserved in light of the holiness of God. And what must God be like that he thought up a way to take that away from you and still be just That's what Paul deals with in Romans 3, 23 to 25. How can God forgive all these sins and still be just? And the answer is, he took the punishment himself. It's not just that he said, well, we don't really have to pay the bill. It doesn't matter. He said, I'll pay the bill for your sin. I'll take the wrath that you deserve for your sin. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, you you didn't receive God's wrath because Jesus took it from you. So now he can say, encourage one another with the truth that God hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or whether we're asleep, we might live with him. Friends, there are so many ways you can encourage one another with the judgment of God. You can remind one another that God will set everything to rights. You can remind one another that apart from the blood of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, you are getting what you deserve. And we can remind ourselves that the places where it seems like evil has prevailed, that God will have the final word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the one that the prophets in the Old Testament pointed at, and that all of humanity from the foundation of time after Genesis 3 has longed for. And I ask now what I asked in the beginning, that you would instruct us, comfort us, encourage us, admonish us, do it all in love. For people that feel like they're standing on the outside of your kingdom looking in, 
Would you take the truths of your righteous judgment, show them the glorious gift of Jesus, and draw them in even now? For people that struggle with self-condemnation, point them to Jesus. For people that struggle with self-righteousness, point us to Jesus. For those of us that are gripped by fear, point us to the day of the Lord. Jesus, thank you that you came first to receive judgment. And you will come again to fully and finally accomplish justice throughout all the earth. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine and he says, this represents a blood of a new covenant, my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he tells us that every time we gather together to eat this meal, and in eating this meal, we're celebrating that through him, we've passed from death into life. That on the cross, Jesus received the judgment that we deserve, and we were given the righteousness that he alone deserves. If you believe that this morning, you're a Christian, and I invite you to come and celebrate this meal with us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, don't take this meal. I don't say that to stiff arm you or make you feel excluded. I say that to make you feel welcome. You don't have to pretend or posture or do anything here to walk with us. In fact, the scriptures tell you it would be unhelpful for you to take this meal if you haven't taken Jesus. Not because there's anything magical about it. We just bought this from the grocery store. It's normal. But the scriptures say, hey, lest you think that this is doing something magical for you, you should take Jesus before you take this meal. So for all who have taken Jesus, come with us and eat whenever you're ready. And those who haven't taken Jesus, we have prayers on the screen behind me that can help you talk to God maybe for the first time in your life. And if you want to take Jesus today, we'd love to pray with you to that end.